Uh, well, good morning. If you're here for the first time and all those watching online, we're so glad you're here with us today. Uh, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians for 15 weeks as of today, and we uh, will officially land the plane next week. Uh, and then we're going to pick back up where we left off last summer uh, in Exodus and finish the second half of that book. Uh, and then in August, we'll spend several weeks going through the book of Titus, looking at what God's Word says about elders and leadership in the church church, as well as discipleship and mentoring and uh, various other things. And also something big that's coming up for us, uh, June 2nd through the 4th in about a week and a half. Uh, that's a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We're hosting a Kids Week here on site at Learning Gate. Uh, this is big for us for several reasons. First of all, it's a great way uh, for us, uh, it's, a, it's a great way um, to engage kids uh, to invest in the next generation. You know, our kids' ministry here at New City Church is not babysitting. Uh, we teach the Bible uh, and sound theology to our kids. We are serious about raising up the next generation to be Jesus-loving leaders and missionaries in their communities and around the world. And our Kids Week is another small deposit into the lives of these kids. And, and personally, as a dad with three kids here at New City, my, my, kids, loving, my kids love coming here on Sundays. Uh, they get excited every week uh, to come, uh, especially when it's time to come. Our hope and our prayer for our kids' ministry is that our kids would drag the parents Parents back to church. You know, we want our kids to love the church. And our Kids Week uh, that we're hosting in about 10 days is a huge part of them growing to love the local church. You know, it's safe, it's fun, and in the process, uh, they get a gospel-centered biblical foundation to stand on. And so first, it's a huge piece uh, just in discipleship for our kids. And then secondly, it's a great way to reach families in our community. Uh, schools out and parents, they're looking for things to do for their kids. Uh, and guess what? Our Kids Week, it is free, uh, and they'll have fun. And so if you know parents with preschool and elementary school ki age kids, uh, try to get them signed up. Uh, reaching and discipling families is a huge part of our vision and mission, and Kids Week is a part of that puzzle. You know, we've been praying for this. Uh, I'm praying for God to work miracles to save kids, uh, that kids would decide to, to, to follow Jesus uh, this week. We've got, you know, I'm praying for about 20 kids. That's almost double our normal attendance on a Sunday. Um, just in a, so praying for 20 kids. Y'all, this isn't just an event we're trying to pull off, um, but we're asking God to just to move in power. Uh, so be inviting and be praying and be expectant and hopeful to see God move in the lives of these kids. Uh, and then next, Transitioning back to our text for today, last week we had one of our uh, global partners come and share about what God is doing in South Asia. And for security reasons, uh, that message is nowhere to be found online. But last week, our brother, our global partner, uh, he preached the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which lists Paul's long list of suffering. And seeing that, uh, he showed us a small picture into the type of physical and emotional suffering that Christians in his part of the world are experiencing, uh, showing us that when the gospel advances, suffering often follows it. You know, sometimes it's physical, sometimes emotional, but it comes and in his part of the world, where about one to two percent of their country are professing believers, uh, where the gospel is all the gospel is exploding and multiplying, uh, and with that comes persecution and intense physical suffering. It's just the norm. And one of the one of my mentors told me uh, early on in my walks with Jesus, when spiritual attack comes, uh, maybe maybe through either physical or emotional suffering, maybe it's physical persecution, or maybe it's extreme sickness or anxiety or doubt or fear. Whatever it is, when it's tied to gospel advancement, when it comes, 
specifically in greater intensity, we should see that as a sign that the enemy is trying to stop something that God is trying to accomplish. When suffering and hardship come, specifically when advancing the gospel, Paul shows us at the end of chapter 12 uh, that it is his boast. Maybe we could say it was his badge of honor. Now I say that, not that we would go around looking for suffering, hardship, and persecution. That would be silly. But I say that so that when it comes, we would see it as one of God's many ways to put his power on display. And that's what we're going to see more of today. You know, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he has been defending himself to these, quote, super apostles. Uh, They didn't think Paul's ministry was legitimate because he had experienced too much hardship. He wasn't an eloquent speaker, and he uh, he was not a pretty boy to look at. He didn't portray himself as a powerful and stoic leader. He didn't seem like a force to be reckoned with, but rather he looked like a fragile man with ailments, a crooked nose, and he struggled to speak and who seemed to have hardship at every turn. From a worldly and non-spiritual perspective, he didn't look like a winner and a heroic warrior. He thought, uh, they thought he looked like a loser that nobody in their right mind should follow. And Paul turns the arrogance of these super apostles back on them. And he makes a long list of boasts, which ironically was a long list of suffering and hardship. Paul said at the end of chapter 11 uh, that we saw last week in verse 30, he said, If I must boast, I will boast of all things that show my weakness. And today he continues that train of thought of boasting in his weaknesses, which leads us to our main idea for today. God's power is put on display in our weakness. This is a major theme throughout, the, uh, throughout 2 Corinthians and really the entire Bible, but it comes uh, on full display today. This idea of power and weakness doesn't make a lot of sense in our culture. I mean, just think about it. If you didn't know, okay, uh, both the NBA and the NHL playoffs uh, have officially begun and now, uh, you know, think about how great of a hype and promo video it would be if the Los Angeles Lakers showed LeBron James and Anthony Davis injured and not able to play. It's like uh, great news for the Lakers. Uh, LeBron and AD, they're out for the rest of the season. Like, no, that would not show strength. That would show great vulnerability because they have lost all of their star power. You know, we don't t- typically think of weakness being a conduit for strength. But as we'll see today, as Paul shows us, that God's power is put on display in our weaknesses. This is just the way God works. And so today, if you're down and out, if you're in a low season or a low point, if you have a reoccurring pain or a constant struggle, or you're painfully aware of your weaknesses, I hope that today you'll listen up because I believe God has a word for you. You know, I want to tell you up front, and this certainly doesn't mean your pain or your weaknesses will go away or get better but rather, quite possibly, God may want to display something through you with it. And so this is what we're going to do today. I'm going to read the entire text, uh, verses 1 through 13, and then we're going to go back through it again in smaller doses, just kind of walking through it, explaining and teaching as we, as we go. Uh, and three different times today, I'm going to go through our text, and I'm going to crack open a door of thought, uh, show it to you, and then close that door, and then keep moving and say we're going to come back to that later. Uh, and then on the back end, we're going to weave all of those together and drive towards one big idea, or one big idea of God's power displayed through weakness. Uh, so we've got a one-point sermon today. That's it. And I believe it'll be an encouragement for us. I really do. I really mean that. Uh, God's means to put his power on display is through broken and vulnerable people. You know, Paul has already shown us in this letter, uh, God puts his treasure on display in chipped clay pots, uh, and that's us. 
As followers of Christ, we're clay pots that hold a marvelous treasure that comes with incredible power. And so let's go ahead. We're going to go ahead and read our text and, and try and wrap our heads around this, what's going on. Uh, and we're going to continue his train of thought of boasting in his weaknesses. Look at what Paul, uh, look at chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the whole thing. It says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, may be, which, may, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing." The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what, in, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. And so that's our text today. So I'm going to stop here. and I'm just going to pray uh, for understanding. Father, we, we give you this word today. Uh, the, Father, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would help us. That you would help us to understand the word that you've given to us. And so, Father, would you, in, uh, would you encourage us? Would you speak to us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at these first. Look at the first verse again. Uh, we're going to start working this, just to kind of work, work through this, to wrap our heads around this. Look at verse 1. It says, But I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And so just some background information here. Paul's opponents, these super apostles, they legitimized themselves and they boasted in their spiritual experiences, in their dreams and visions. I mean, I imagine these guys, if it were today, they may have written a best-selling book on the, these incredible visions that they had from God. Uh, they were proud of them. Okay, And then Paul begins to engage this. He engages them in this conversation. Look back at verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So, so Paul basically says, hey, uh, you've had great dreams and visions, but guess what? I know a guy that has had better dreams and visions. This guy was called up into the third heaven. Uh, was it real? Uh, was it an out-of-body experience? Paul doesn't know. God knows. Paul doesn't. But regardless, this guy got a glimpse into the third heaven, which is known to be where God dwells. Uh, just something fun and interesting for us today. 
If you're not familiar with this, I wasn't until this week. Biblical cosmology and scholars uh, would say that the first heaven is the atmosphere. Uh, the second heaven uh, are the stars. And the third heaven, what, what uh, Paul references today, is where God reigns. Uh, and this guy that Paul knows has seen the third heaven. He saw and heard things that can't be repeated. And so if anybody should boast about dreams and visions, this guy that Paul knows should do the most boasting. You know what's funny about that? Uh, most scholars widely agree that that guy is Paul himself. But yet he doesn't dwell or share much about this because it wouldn't have been profitable or helpful. Uh, so instead, Paul comes back and continues. Look at verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on, be on, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul knows that he could boast, and he wouldn't be lying if he did boast, but he's holding back, and he doesn't. He doesn't boast because Paul wants to ensure that his leadership is not authenticated by ecstatic out-of-body experiences uh, that he had, but rather he wants to ensure that leadership in the church and their authority is based on their life and their doctrine, by their words and actions, what they do uh, and what they say, and not what they've experienced. Experiences like dreams and visions are not innately bad. In fact, God oftentimes uses them for his good purposes, but they do not authenticate leadership and authority in the church. This is a bit of a side, but as an apologetic argument, you know, one of the many things that makes Christianity unique from almost every other major world religion is that it didn't come from an out-of-body out experience like a dream or a vision from one man. Most other, major, most other major world religions are authenticated and validated because one person had some sort of experience that they believe gave them authority, which seems to be, uh, for me, it seems to be problematic. Paul speaks of dreams and visions elsewhere. Uh, in fact, he came to be a Christian through a vision from God. And so we can't completely throw them out. You know, many Muslims all over the world come to Christ starting with dreams and visions that they have. But these dreams and visions are always authenticated by real-life reality and biblical truth. Again, dreams and visions and experiences are often used by God, but they are not the ultimate authority. God's Word is the ultimate authority. There's so much to say here, uh, but Paul intentionally doesn't harp on this, and so we're not going to either. Rather, what Paul focuses on are his weaknesses. Look at what he says next in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I, that it should leave me. So Paul recognizes that these revelations that he had are of surpassing greatness. That's what he said in verse 7. But although they were so great, Paul says he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. This thorn uh, that Paul was given, uh, we don't know what it was, but Paul says it was a messenger of Satan that kept him from becoming prideful, uh, from becoming conceited. That's what he said. Again, we don't know exactly what it was. It could have been uh, inner psychological stru struggles such as grief or anxiety. Uh, maybe his anxiety over the churches, like he said in chapter 11. Or maybe grief and sorrow, you know, over the continual unbelief of God's people or their continual rejection of ongoing or ongoing falling into temptation. 
It could have been his physical ailments from sickness or hunger or from all, be- all the beatings he had. It could have been uh, the ongoing persecution uh, and, and afflictions from his opponents. Or maybe it could have been some sort of demonic ac- activity. But most commentators and scholars would say that this was uh, most likely a physical ailment. But then they all followed up by saying, but you know what, we don't actually know uh, what it really was. You know, if I had to make a stab at it uh, myself based off of the text, it would, I would say it seems like a psychological struggle, an inner battle of his mind, uh, because he says it was a messenger of Satan. And when I hear messenger, I don't think physical struggle. I think of some sort of lies or message uh, that he was struggling with in his mind. But again, we don't know what the thorn was in his side, but whatever it was, that thorn, it kept him humble. And Paul says, it says it came from Satan. That's what it said. But we also know that just as God often does, God uses this thorn that was given to him for his good purposes, to keep him humble and dependent on God. But we're going to come back to this uh, thorn idea later, like I said we would. But for now, I want to keep moving through the text. Look again in the next few verses. And just to keep the train of thought going, we're going to look at the first verse. Uh, verse 8, we're going to read it again. It says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Speaking of his thorn. And then in verses 9 and 10, where we're going to spend most of our time today, Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." And so this is where we, we see our main idea for today, leading us to see that God's power is put on display through our weaknesses. You know, over the past few weeks in 2 Corinthians, our entire series has been leading up to this point. Uh, this is the gold that we have been mining for over the past few weeks. We've seen the Pauline sass uh, come through. If you remember Paul, he's been hot and spicy. Paul's having that sit-down conversation. He's being hard and direct. Uh, And all of it leads up to this point in 2 Corinthians where Paul is saying to these super apostles, hey, uh, this life in ministry, it is not about you. This life in ministry as God would have it is about decreasing so Jesus can increase. This is the Christian life. We must decrease and Christ must increase. We boast in our weaknesses because God's power and glory, they come, it comes bursting through them. But before we get too far into this idea, we're going to slow down and keep moving and finish out our text. And we're going to come back to that idea in a few minutes. But then look to see how Paul concludes his foolishness um, that we've, we've kind of seen over the past several weeks. He says, starting in verse 11, he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. In verse 11, we just saw Paul say, I'm not inferior to these super apostles that he's been talking about. While yet he humbly knows and recognizes in the exact same, exact same verse that he is nothing. That's literally what he said in verse, seven, verse 11. He said, I'm not inferior, even though I am nothing. Paul realizes that he is weak. Paul, Paul knows that he has nothing to stand on except the grace of God. And and the thing that authenticates him as an apostle, he says in verse 12, was a threefold Old Testament phrase that comes out of the book of Exodus, which are signs, wonders, and mighty works. 
And just to kind of prepare us for uh, our Exodus series to teach here just for a second, um, these signs, wonders, and mighty works are often referenced to God saving his people, Israel, out of slavery from Egypt, which in turn is often referenced to the salvation event that is tied to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And what commentators often point out here, uh, just to bring it all together, the mark of a true apostle in more plain terms is just being sent out into evangelism to share about what Christ has done. And seeing the signs and wonders and mighty works of God entering into the hearts of people who have not trusted in Christ. Apostles are sent out to see the great miracle of someone crossing from death to life, to see the great miracle of salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. The greatest miracles are not miraculous physical events, but rather the spiritual event of a holy God taking a rebellious sinner and washing them clean and making and calling them his own and making them his own. Apostle literally means sent out one. And the mark of a true apostle, as Paul shows us, is someone who is sent out to share about the greatest miracle ever displayed in the work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. The gospel is the sign that points to the glory of God. The gospel creates wonder and awe in the hearts of God's people. The gospel, if you do not know it, is the greatest news ever told. That Jesus came down to earth to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve. And when we believe in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, we are given eternal life. And at the conception of faith, the Holy Spirit, it's a miracle, it enters into our lives. And God begins to transform us to be like Jesus. The most simple way possible, the gospel is easily said to be Jesus in my place. Just like a substitution in sports, Jesus was substituted on the cross in our place, and he took our penalty for our sin, and we get his reward. Jesus came to earth and went to the cross instead of you and me in our place. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the wonder in all of that today. Both Christian and those who are hearing this for the first time, maybe, this is incredible news all over again. This is the grace of God for your life all over again today. This never gets old, ever. We need to remember this every day. The news, uh, this news does not just save us and get us to be with Jesus in heaven, but this is the motivation that fuels us to live our life with purpose and passion and zeal. This is, this is what provides rest for our souls. This is our strength and confidence. If you have not trusted in Jesus, trust him today. It will change your life. Listen, it's not promised to be easier, but it will be eternally better. And it will be filled with greater purpose. And now finally, for the third time, like I said, we would. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. To turn the gospel diamond again, to bring everything together into our one big idea for today. But in that said, I want to move to where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. This idea of power and weakness. Christ's power displayed in our weakness. And so let's reread verses 8 and 9 again. Paul said, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. That thorn. Uh, verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's power is made perfect in weakness. 
This theme has been running throughout this letter, but in Paul's direct conversation with these, quote, super apostles, this is where it all leads. That God's power is made perfect in weakness. Again, this this thought is counterintuitive to our culture and our world. Power is not displayed through weakness. Power is displayed through power. You know, I used the Lakers as an example earlier. And some I'm going to use the military, uh, the power of an army. Uh, the power of an army is, is put on display through military might, like, like the size of the military or the advancement of technology, the resources that are available or, or the training and the skills of their people. Again, you don't display great power in the military by putting on display your weaknesses. A, a surefire way to lose a battle is to tell the opposing army, hey, here are our weaknesses. Here are our vulnerabilities. Hey, if you strike us here, uh, we'll have to wave the white flag and the war will be over. No, that's silly. No army and no sports team puts on display their weaknesses for the opposing army or team. But you know what? In God's kingdom, the Bible teaches about an upside down kingdom, how God's power is shown in weakness. But guess what? It's not our power. It's God's power that's shown. The way the kingdom of God works is that he uses weak and vulnerable people to display his great power. It's not that there's no power. No, that would be silly. And it's not that the power is absent. No, rather it's God who displays his power, but it's displayed more perfectly through the weaknesses of his people. God certainly uses the strengths of his people for his purposes. I mean, God blesses people with unique gifts and abilities, but many of the greatest acts of God are often displayed through the weaknesses of his people and not strengths. In fact, it may be fair to say in the economy of God that our greatest human strength and our greatest skill set and abilities may also be our greatest liability. For example, maybe, maybe you're good with people. Making friends and influencing people is easy. Maybe you're really smart, or maybe you're a natural leader or a gifted teacher or a gifted musician. Maybe you're creative or outgoing or a strategic thinker. Whatever it may be, your greatest strength that God has given you, it's a gift from God to you. And God certainly wants to use it for his glory, but it's also your greatest liability because that's exactly where pride and self-sufficiency can easily creep in. To say it again, In the economy of God, your greatest strength may be your greatest liability. But what I don't want you to miss today is that your greatest weakness may also be your greatest asset. Have you ever considered that your limitations or handicaps or your greatest struggles in life, and I'm not talking about sin struggles. Paul's thorn was not a sin struggle. I'm talking about situational struggles and challenges that come our way like sickness or ailments or personality traits or monotony at work or at school or maybe ongoing emotional and mental challenges like anxiety or grief. Maybe there's an ongoing sense of loneliness and isolation or maybe there's an ongoing insecurities that you may possess like thinking I'm not smart enough or I'm not likable or maybe something, you, something with your appearance or upbringing or family brokenness, or maybe there's a person in your life that keeps nagging at you and making things really difficult. Maybe it's with your children or with your parents or your spouse or a family member. There are so many things that could be, uh, that could be a thorn in your side, creating a handicap or a limitation or a challenge. Have you ever considered that God may want to use your greatest handicap to be used as one of your greatest gifts and assets? For God's kingdom. 
whatever trial or hardship you have experienced or gone through, whatever ongoing trouble you may have, whatever handicap or limitation that exists in your life, what if God wants to use that to display his power through you? What if God wants to use your past relational trauma to minister to others, to go through, they go through that same trauma? What if God wants to use the thing you're most ashamed of to minister to others who are dealing with that same thing? What if God wants to start a multiplying movement of God through you in spite of your shyness or maybe lack of relational connections? What if the way God wants to use you is to show the joy that can be found in Jesus even when nothing goes your way? That Jesus is better than your ideal life. And so let me ask, uh, what weaknesses or handicaps do you believe you have that God may want to use for his purposes? You know, all, all week long, um, I've kind of wrestled with whether or not I should share this. And quite honestly, um, I can't remember if I've shared this with you or not from the pulpit because I've put this uh, in sermons in the past just to later take it out. <laughs> uh, and to be frank with you, I'd like to take it out this week too, but um, sometimes God calls us to be vulnerable even when we don't want to be. And this week I've wrestled with the Lord about this and I believe this week he's led me to share uh, because this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, has been ringing in my ear all week long because this verse has been an anchor verse in my life in ministry because one of my greatest fears and insecurities in my life, especially as a kid and a teenager, was and it still is some ways public speaking. The thorn in my side for most of my early years as a Christian in high school and in college, college and even part of seminary was public speaking. Because I have very vivid memories as a young child and in middle school and even going into high school of being made fun of and laughed at for stuttering and mumbling and completely freezing multiple times and speaking in front of my class in large groups and even in small social settings. And just I just could not get out what I wanted to say. I've heard every joke under the sun as a kid and related to speaking. And then in high school, I gave my life to Christ. And within six months, I was asked to stand up and share my testimony to over 500 people. I was like, are you kidding me? There's no way I can do that. I can hardly speak in front of two people. But God worked in my heart and I agreed to do it. And that night was probably the first time in my life where I was able to stand up and clearly speak in front of people. And the only thing that made any sense was that it was the power of the Holy Spirit working through me. And then fast forward two years later, when I was in college, I have very vivid memories where I was terrified that God was going to call me to be a pastor. You know, someone who stands up week after week and uh, would speak God's word in front of people. And for the, for the next 10 years of my life, God grew me and shaped me uh, and developed me in speaking, regularly putting me in front of people to speak week in and week out. And this verse was the verse that God used as a simple reminder of his grace in my life. I, I know I've got a long way to go when it comes to preaching and speaking. Uh, and believe me, I am my own worst critic. But the fact that I can stand up in front of you today and speak, I attest to nothing but the grace of God. And that's just one of the many thorns uh, in my side. 
But that's the first thing that always pops in my head whenever I think of this verse. For you, like I said, maybe it's not a skill or insecurity or quite possibly for many, uh, it's some sort of pain or grief or anxiety or family trouble or abandonment or rejection or constant setbacks. There are so many thorns that we all experience every day. Some are small and seemingly trivial, like computer problems, amen? or dog messes, or scheduling conflicts, or car troubles. They are a pain, and they are a thorn in our side, but they keep us humble. But I also know there are some thorns that are traumatic, and very, very painful, and it grieves us, and they hurt us deeply. Because thorns, by nature, cause pain. And when you get pricked by a thorn, it hurts. It causes some sort of pain. But whatever it is, whether trivial or traumatic, I want you to hear this today. Your pain is not being wasted because God does not waste pain. Yes, pain reminds us that the world is broken and that it's not the way it ought to be. But at the same time, our pain reminds us that we need a savior. Our pain reminds us that we need a remedy. And our pain shows us we need the medicine of God's sustaining grace. Our pain shows us that we need to hear exactly what God said to Paul. Paul said he pleaded with the Lord three times that this thorn, that it would leave him. Paul pleaded for the pain and the thorn to leave, he said in verse 8. But God had a different plan for him. Verse 9, Paul writes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen, there's, we know two things about this pain, this thorn that Paul experienced. First, it did not come from God, it came from Satan, and that is important. But secondly, although it came from Satan, it was used by God so that Paul would depend on God's sufficient grace. He said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Genesis 5.20. One of my favorite stories, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery, involving trial after trial after trial. Joseph was later able to see how God used his pain and trouble in being sold into slavery and was able to later say, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This theme is all throughout God's word. God takes pain and hardship and he uses it for his good purposes. No, God does not cause it, but he certainly uses it. And we see this most fully at the cross of Christ, where God used the pain of the cross to show his greatest glory, to reveal his divine power. Jesus's most vulnerable moment at the cross also displayed Jesus's greatest power and authority. We know that in the gospel, Jesus went to the cross, taking on our weakness, becoming weak, and then perfectly displaying his power by defeating sin and death and being raised from the dead and giving us new life with him. The bloody cross of Christ is the ultimate display of weakness and vulnerability, where the resurrection of Christ is the ultimate display of power and strength and authority. And listen, in the Christian life, we have both. We daily take up our crosses and see our weaknesses, but we are not left without resurrecting power. I know it's not Easter, but here at New City Church, we celebrate the power of the resurrection every single Sunday. Because without the power of the resurrection, we are left incredibly weak and without hope and without power. But hear me loud and clear on this. Brothers and sisters, yes, we are weak, but may we not forget that Jesus Christ is strong. His grace is enough. 
Following Jesus, it comes with a great cost that is full of vulnerability and weakness, but it is not left without power and authority. The Christian life, as God's word says, is greatly said to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Christian, fear not in your pain because the power of, the God, of God is on your side. Do not forget we do not stand on our own strength. We stand on the strength of the God of the universe. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but fret not, Christian, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Whatever thorn you had, God tells us his grace is sufficient for you. And so again, hear this today. Whatever pain you have, whatever thorn or insecurity or handicap or weakness you may have, hear this today. God wants to use it for his good purposes. And it may simply be to show the world that God's grace is sufficient to sustain even when things are hard. To end our time here today, I want to share an excerpt from a book that I came across this week. And one of the devotionals that I'm going through, this, the excerpt comes from a book written by Joni Erickson Tata on suffering, titled, When God Weeps. And if you're not familiar with her story, she was a young, athletic, 17-year-old girl, and she took a dive into shallow water, and she came out paralyzed from the waist down. She could move her arms, but she couldn't use her hands. And as a teenager, she just laid there completely helpless, and as she laid there, she said to God, I can't live like this. I won't live like this. She thought about taking her own life, but she couldn't even do that. Emotionally though, she was done. She cried out in the darkness of a night, God, if I can't die, then show me how to live. And through her friends, she started to see that as she would say, God permits what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. And God has used her life being paralyzed to show the hope of Christ over the next, over the past 40 years. Through both writing and speaking and bringing light into darkness to those whose life is similar to hers. And this book that I, that, uh, that I'm gonna, that I read this week, she wrote, and it's up on the screen. This is what she said. The cross is the center of our relationship with Jesus. The cross is where we die. We go there daily. It isn't easy. Normally, we will follow Christ anywhere, to a party, as it were, where he changes water into wine, to a sunlit beach where he preaches from a boat. But to the cross, we dig in our heels. The invitation is so frighteningly, frighteningly individual. It's an invitation to go alone. Suffering reduces us to nothing, as Soren Kierkegaard noted. God creates everything out of nothing. And everything which, which God, God is to use, he first reduces it to nothing. To be reduced to nothing is to be dragged to the foot of the cross. It's a severe mercy. When suffering forces us to our knees at the foot of Calvary, we die to self. We cannot kneel there for long without releasing our pride and anger, unclasping our dreams and desires in exchange God imparts power and implants new and lasting hope. Listen, our thorns lead us to continually go to Jesus at the foot of the cross where he understands our hardship. But there is where we also find daily resurrecting hope and power. Again, your greatest weakness just may be your greatest asset to be, in the king, to be used in the kingdom of God. 
our weaknesses, our thorns in the flesh, so to speak, keep us humble and dependent and on our knees, begging for God to come through, to show his face and display his power. Don't miss this today. Complete dependence on God is the most powerful place we can be. There is so much power in being dependent on God. And you know what? In God's kindness, it's often our thorns that put us there. And you know what else? God's word tells us that in that vulnerable place, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient to sustain you through your pain, through your weariness, and through the unknowns. God's grace is greater than your weakness. God's grace is sufficient for you. Brother, God's grace is sufficient for you. Sister, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient. Believe that today. New City Church, I hope that you've seen today that God's power is put on display in our weaknesses. Let's pray. God, the cross is enough. God, power is displayed in weakness and you showed your power at the cross by displaying your vulnerability at the cross. God, your grace is sufficient and your grace is displayed at the cross. Would we trust in that power? Would we trust in that hope? Father, would you fuel us today to keep going? Father, we need you and we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.